Thank you all for joining us for the latest Innovation Forum webinar. Um, today we'll be looking at towards clarity and consensus, how apparel brands can measure their biodiversity impacts for a nature positive future. Uh, my name is Tanya Rishar. I'm the head of research and stakeholder engagement at Innovation Forum, and I have the pleasure of moderating the session today. For the next hour or so, we'll be looking at areas such as the tools and frameworks available for measurement um, in the world of biodiversity and apparel, uh, what is the outlook for alignment on biodiversity measurement for businesses, how brands can use frameworks like SPTI or TNFD to report and verify their biodiversity impacts, and maybe some examples on what does best practice from brands really look like um, on the ground. So I am joined by three fantastic speakers. Um, you'll see them all on your screen. Uh, we have Liesl Truscott, who's Director of Industry Accountability and Insights at Textile Exchange, Amanda Parks, Chief Innovation Officer at Pangaea, and Franklin Holly, Director of Fashion at Conservation International. So again, if you are new to IF or if you've been here before, you know you would like to have these sessions be very interactive. Um, so I have tons of questions and I even in our practice call we have you know we can speak for hours on this but we want the session to be interactive so to everyone listening please be sure to ask questions in the Q&A function I'm sure you are all familiar with Zoom by now but there's a little button at the bottom of your screen that says Q&A so ask your questions in there don't leave them until the end um, best chance that we'll get them get to them if you ask them as soon as you they pop into your mind and if possible direct them to a panelist makes my job a little bit easier and makes it so that maybe the panelists can see what's going on and, and prepare as well um, all right let's start um, maybe to frame the session slightly I can turn to Franklin um, to start things off give us a bit of an overview. Where are things in the world of biodiversity and apparel? Um, what is currently happening in the industry? What is on the horizon as well? Over to you, Franklin. Thanks, Tanya. Great to be here today. Hi, everybody. Uh, good morning. Good afternoon. Um, yeah, well, maybe let's just start off with a few um, a few reminders, I'm sure, you know, most of you, you're joining this webinar because um, biodiversity and measuring impact on biodiversity is clearly of interest, but um, I think it's it's really important to remind ourselves, you know, what is it about biodiversity that's so important um, and how biodiversity underpins the nature that we need to thrive, um, both as, as individuals, um, but also as uh, companies and um and, and users of, um, of consumer goods. So, um, you know, we know that um, wildlife and native plants support healthy ecosystems that we rely on. Um, and when we have biodiverse ecosystems that are intact, that also helps humans stay healthy, protects things like freshwater quality, for example, um, and the air that we breathe. Um, biodiversity is also really an essential part of the solution to climate change as we see it um, and knowing that there are um, natural climate solutions that um, both have um, good outcomes for climate as well as biodiversity. And we also know that biodiversity is in many places an, an integral part of culture and identity. So it's important, you know, across the board, not just from a kind of megafauna standpoint, um, but, you know, all of the, the factors that, um, that really play into biodiversity and, and, underpin, um, and underpin its importance to nature. I think at the same time, we have to acknowledge that um, biodiversity is in steep decline um, and that the, the fashion and apparel industry is contributing to that. Um, and, you know, those examples uh, for um, 
could be in um, the you know large portions of the forest space that's cleared in the Amazon um, that's used to rear the cattle whose hides are then used for leather bags, shoes, belts, and the like. Um, certainly understanding that you know there's there's also beef and that's that's derived driven by um, protein consumption in large part, but um, but there is a role for the fashion sector to play. Um, cotton production um, and, and other um, crop production, you know, has been linked to um, uh, less than uh, perfect use of water and um, pesticides also contributing both to water scarcity um, and, and also to freshwater pollution um, and, and nutrients as well going into freshwater pollution that both impacts again, um, you know, our uh, drinking water quality, for example, but also the, the fresh water that is home to, um, you know, many plants and animal species. And, um, and then we also know that um, at least 10.5 million tons of clothing are sent to landfills each year. And so that's waste. That's, you know, inputs um, and impact that's uh, gone into producing those garments that then um, ultimately ends up in landfill and then has, you know, further impact beyond. Um, and there are others, but you know, not to get into the uh, too much into the doom and gloom, because I do think that there, you know, there's a lot of um, really positive action coming out of this industry um, in uh, the last several years in particular. And just even in, um, in my experience at CI started about two years ago. Um, and um, we launched both our regenerative fund for nature um, with caring, um, as well as um, a, an initiative under the Global Environment Facility that we co-execute with the Fashion Pact Association just after the Fashion Pact had launched, um, where we are the lead delivery partner on the biodiversity pillar there and seeing the work that's come out of, um, you know, both of those initiatives, as well as what, um, you know, we're doing in partnership with companies one-on-one, -on -one, I think is, is absolutely astounding and, and things are happening faster than um, then we sometimes have capacity to, um, to deal with, but, um, but it's really, um, I think it's helping with a lot of optimism. And um, I think couple that with, you know, outcomes from the um, COP15, for example, um, and the, the CBD COP um, that took place in Montreal last year, um, you know, we saw um, the outcome, the biggest outcome, at least for us, is the, the new global biodiversity framework, the GBF, um, that was adopted that's really comprehensive, spans um, many of the major environmental concerns of our time. And um, we at CI are, you know, celebrating um, successes and achieving a lot of the objectives that we had there, um, which relate to um, you know, nature positive uh, focus and outcomes um, and including the definition of nature positive to really halt, not just halt, but reverse biodiversity loss. Seeing um, the importance of indigenous peoples and local communities recognized um, as well as uh, pandemic prevention being part of that, um, given that, um, you know, loss of habitat also often can um, increase the risk of zoonotic disease transfer. Um, and then also nature contributions to people and knowing that um, nature-based solutions for climate, for air, water, food, and disaster reductions, seeing that there, 
Um, and then, and then also seeing, you know, really a big push for sufficient financing to go along with um, the the targets and the frameworks that were put in place, and having a, a new trust fund created under the Global Environment Facility that will dedicate um, financing the achievement of the Global Biodiversity Framework and and be able to accept private sector funds, which is really exciting. So a lot of hope there, um, and um, maybe I just round it out with you know a, a statement about you know. Biodiversity is hard to measure. It's hard to um, measure your impact and then, you know, performance over time. Um, but that doesn't mean that we can't do it or we shouldn't do it. Um, there are a lot of factors that go into, you know, thinking about it all the way from, you know, work that needs to happen on the ground um, and seeing outcomes with respect to, say, in rangeland systems, um, looking at, um, you know, rangelands health and what does that have to do with biodiversity outcomes or, um, for instance, looking at um, interactions with wildlife um, and better wildlife friendly practices, um, such as uh, the shearing of wild Guanaco in Argentina or um, wildlife protection dogs um, that can, or sorry, herd protection dogs, for instance, that can, um, that can then, you know, stave off predators rather than having to, um, having to, um, uh, you know, hunt those predators or, or kill those predators to remove them from the domesticated systems. Um, and, and a lot of examples that, you know, we could talk about um, in terms of what companies are doing. But I think, um, you know, that we also have to think at the landscape level, biodiversity um, doesn't know jurisdictional boundaries. Um, and we have to think at a systems level for biodiversity outcomes because it is so integrated with air, water um, and um, soils, for instance, um, and other, other parts of the system, and then also at the global level. And so I think there are different tools and, and resources that are, um, that are incredibly helpful um, that we can talk about later on uh, that, that can help us measure, um, you know, both impact, risk, impact, and then, and then outcomes um, at scale uh, as we go forward. So maybe I'll stop there, but um, can certainly come back to these topics as we have time. Thank you, Franklin. Thank you for perfectly framing this with the importance of why we're talking about this and then some happy notes <laughs> on what is happening and then um, touching on a lot of the topics I'm hoping to cover over the next 50 minutes. Um, maybe if I turn to Amanda now, um, a lot of the people in the room will be familiar with Pangaea, but if you could tell us a bit more about um, how the company is aiming to uphold biodiversity and its operations and paint us a bit of a picture of what that looks like at Pangaea. Yeah, so hi, I'm uh, Amanda Parks, the Chief Innovation Officer of Pangaea, and I run our scientific strategy. And we are a material science company. You probably know us much more as a fashion brand, which is how we kind of manifest in the world. But really at the core, uh, which, which is what makes our business model different, is to really um, have research, R&D, and, and also extensive collaboration at the core of what we're doing to bring new materials that are under development um, into real true commercialization. So part of our philosophy, so what I've what I've entitled high-tech naturalism, like thinking about our material philosophy, is to think about where are there places of abundance in nature? So things like waste, and that can be agricultural waste, it could be carbon, you know, all the, all the different sort of areas of analyzing the world and putting that into use um, by utilizing the kind of latest of high-tech science, chemistry, et cetera, to actually kind of augment the features of that. So one of the things that, you know, biodiversity is one of our research pillars 
in, in, you know, as part of this philosophy. And one of the ways that we're kind of working to really expand it is to say, you know, we, we've over-industrialized traditional cotton, right? This is part of what a lot of the harm is coming from this, but there are so many other plants and fibers out there that have incredible properties that we just haven't quite analyzed. And we haven't um, really established the proper supply chains around how do we process them. And this whole idea of the kinds of, you know, the, the natural systems, you know, how, what plants want to grow together, right? And like, how do we actually utilize those different kinds of fibers and putting those into practice also gives us a variety of different material properties, right? So this is this is a way to really also expand the kind of engineering functionality and kind of really, you know, from a biomimetic sense, how do we observe and utilize nature in its purest form? So that's part of what we're doing at Pengai. We have fibers and fabrics like that we, you know, plant fiber, fruit fiber that are utilizing. We've, you know, managed to create kind of soft jerseys that actually utilize no cotton. You think they're sort of cotton-like, um, but they're all using different kinds of waste, pineapple, banana, um, hemp, nettle. So things that things that are both kind of side streams of the agricultural process. Um, as so nothing that competes with the food source. It's using something that's already being grown as part of the food um, supply chain and then utilizing the side parts and then also things that grow as weeds and that are that are harvested as weeds. So these are a couple of the different angles that we're working on with biodiversity. And I think really the biggest point is for us to say if the the kind of um, expansion of biodiversity is part of your core business model, right? So it expands your business. Um, that this is actually part of the, you know, what we're doing to create um, a, a sustainable business, then that's really a way to advance it. Because, right, we we all know that, um, you know, things, we, we need to have business models and ways to actually be successful in order to, to move things forward. This is what's really going to drive the needle um, to get things across the finish line. Thank you, Amanda. I, you've touched on it a little bit, but it'd be interesting to see more practically from, from a business, what are the main biodiversity indicators that you're focusing on, focusing on measuring that feed into your strategy and, and therefore measurement and, um, in, in a bigger sense? Yeah, I think it's a combination of looking at how we shift from the you know traditional cotton, right? So what are we doing to kind of move beyond that? So we're investing in regenerative cotton, right? You, everything is already organic and then moving into the new, the newer kinds of fibers from a very interesting perspective, and this is where we kind of get into, um, well, what I use, what I think of as like sort of the innovation gap is a lot of the traditional indicators and measurements don't necessarily, um, you know, we, we if if the if a supply chain isn't fully established, you're not necessarily going to have better life cycle analysis indicators, right? And so, what one of the things we have to do is to fill in that innovation aggregation. So. For example, um, you know, you might be looking at something that is waste, right? Which in, you know, for all sort of scientific intuition, you know that that's something that should be considered better and secondary um, to anything that's grown as, as, a, as a singular crop. And we're trying to figure out how to do the analysis on things that are waste that are sort of coming out with a higher impact, right? So there, there's, there's, a, there's a strange kind of place, which is sort of like a green premium, but how do we, how do we actually analyze the fact that we know that this is for the long term better, right? 
and then start to really kind of put into place those next level, um, you know, indicators and, and also kind of measurements. So that's one of the things that we're really up against. So. Thank you. Um, Liesl, I can turn to you now. Um, in addition to what Franklin and Amanda have already shared, um, what else, you know, your textile exchange occupies this interesting space in the industry, you're sort of interfering, um, well, interfering, like interacting with <laughs> um, tons of brands along the whole value chain and all these different aspects. So it'd be interesting to see in your work in this area with brands at textile exchange, um, what do you see as the best practice from brands that if you're imagining like the best brands that are working, the brands that are working the best in this space, um, what is it about their strategies that make it good? Are they measuring the right thing? Are they using the right frameworks? Are they collaborating with the right people? Um, it'd be great to hear, you know, from, from your experience, what makes them the best in this area? What is the best practice that you've seen here? It's a very small question, Tanya. <laughs> uh, lovely to be here. Thanks so much for the invitation and, and, yeah, really great to have um, Franklin laying the scene and, and addressing a lot of the complexities that we're all up against when we're looking at this amazing topic of biodiversity and nature and, and knowing how that relates to our industry. And then Amanda bringing in the particularly the innovation piece. I think that's absolutely vital to how we move forward. There's some real pragmatic um solutions that we need to find. And we also need to connect that very quickly with a lot of the, the innovation and creative thinking, because as we've all heard, you know, we're, we're in a state of biodiversity collapse. I think that's one of the things that, you know, Franklin mentioned some of the doom and gloom and one of the latest stats from the Living Planet report that I'm sure many of you have heard, 69% average decline in wildlife populations since 1970. It's certainly in my lifetime, and that's that's huge. And I, I was at a conference just the other day, and there were a few remarks about this this particular quote. And um, what struck me was if there was somebody that said, if a company lost sixty nine percent of its workforce, you know, how would they survive? How would they cope? And it's a it's a very similar scenario. How are we going to? keep the planet functioning if we're losing so much of its workforce. And I thought that was that was really interesting. And since I'm on quotes, I had another quite good one that I thought, you know, addressing once again um, the doom and gloom is I, I heard Simon Zadek, who's the, the lead um, or the CEO, I think, at, at Nature Finance, and he said, Nature brings positive emotions and, and opportunities while climate change fills us with dread and anxiety. That's not to say that action for nature is any easier or less worrying, but part of the appeal is that it is more about how to regenerate nature rather than being about what we need to stop. And I, and I think there's something really wonderful in that. I think as individuals, you know, we connect to nature, we feel good in nature, there's a well-being element um, and there's also some really pragmatic connections between climate and nature and sort of getting back to your, your question, where is the best practice? And I think a, a lot of that is learning from what we've experienced with climate, the good, the bad and the ugly. And we'll probably get to unpack all of, all of those pieces. You know, we've come a long way in understanding how to measure climate. Obviously, the, the indicator for that is, as I think we hear quite often, is much more simplistic. It's in keeping in a 1.5 degree limit within climate change. So we have that as a very clear global indicator. Um, and then when we go to biodiversity and nature, it's it's much more about the 
geological and geographical and socioeconomic um, context in which we're we're operating in. So that makes things quite complicated. And I think as an industry, um, the textile, from our experience at Textile Exchange, we know this is um is quite overwhelming and textile exchange works as a as a non-profit we have over 800 members you said interfering in people's lives quite quite a lot in, in these days which is fantastic there's huge interest now in raw materials tier 4 you know how to get back to sourcing regions in ways that we we never experienced before you know obviously there's been the front runners for years and some of these front runners are uh, true to form you know leading the way in terms of how to connect to the complexities the challenges um that we're facing so we're looking to you know, the pangeas and and others in our industry to help you know where where are the innovations where are the best practices how can we communicate those back out and accelerate and and scale where we where we can help so I think you know, if you want to look quite pragmatically, um, standards is a really good place to start. You know, we're looking, I know we'll get to talk about TNFD and reporting standards, but if we just take um, fibre standards, you know, production standards, cultivation, they may not tick all the boxes on biodiversity and nature yet. In fact, there's been a huge amount of focus on how we move from looking at the requirements and the practice-based expectations within standards to how does that translate to impact? And then how do we measure that? How do we collect that data? We're looking at very complex global uh, supply chains. You know, traceability is, is going to be key to many of the solutions and innovations and measuring of, um, of impact. But there's also out of the box ideas of, you know, we know where the big sourcing regions are around the world. Franklin talked a little bit to that, you know, whether we source from them or not, we know where the big impacts are. There's amazing amount of technology and tools out there to show where the hotspots are. What are some of those innovative ways to to incentivize better practices in those hotspots, regardless of whether we're sourcing from them or not? So Lots and lots to unpack around that. And, and I think just one other comment on from climate to, to nature and where we're seeing some of the best practices is very clever sustainability people like Amanda are leveraging the investment and the board buy-in and some of the strategies that have been developed around climate to recognise that it's inextricably linked to nature. So how do we broaden the scope and the criteria of what we do for climate to make sure we're looking at this more holistically as a company, as an industry, and start to bridge some of those gaps? And I'm really happy to talk about how we're bridging some of those gaps through our benchmarking programme, but I'll, I'll stop there for now. No, thank you, Liesl. And maybe there's going to be a quote from this webinar that someone will quote in a different webinar soon. <laughs> um, thank you very much. Um, yeah, I'm trying to figure out where to go because I know that there's um, I, I, maybe if just quickly on the note of innovation, there's so much to to go through there. But since we spoke about indicators a little bit already, I wonder if maybe at this point it's good to bring in the question from the audience from Ketra Norris. Um, just if we start, you know, more intricately and, and more from a detailed perspective, um, she was asking, and, and this is to you, Amanda, when you're looking at incorporating all of these innovative and, and alternative fabrics, um, 
how are you assessing um, how the the impact of them, and then also are you assessing what chemicals, additives, and dyes um, you use that reduce the environmental impact? So um, we're going granular here, and then I think I'm going to step back to a bigger picture. But it'd be great to hear from from you on that quickly, Amanda. Yeah. So absolutely, I think that what you're talking about, chemicals, additive dyes, that's a huge part of this that is sort of the invisible polluter of, of all this space. So we actually spend a lot of time on that, which is, you know, somewhat of a harder problem to address because it is invisible, right? So we know, you know, you can have a completely organic cotton uh, shirt and then it have like a super toxic dye, which will make it non-biodegradable or, you know, have it leave various, various kinds of toxins. So that's absolutely what we're doing. We're working with everything from natural dyes, bacterial dyes, you know, we have, you know, big program around uh, biofabrication. We also have really next gen um, treatments that are like literally, literally invisible. So things like multiplex laser surface enhancement, which is a treatment that involves um, literally kind of creating a, it, it has no water, no chemicals, and you're using um, a, a low frequency laser and superheated plasma to create kind of what is like a patina on, on the nano level of the textile to do things like stop, first of all, stop microfibers um, to being released. So it kind of creates a sealant. It can do a lot of the things that, um, that, you know, you have for like dye preparation. So not even the dye itself, the phase before the dye is one of the huge, huge, huge issues around um, chemicals and water. And so kind of looking at all of these in-between steps where we can have much, much smarter. So the highest level of technology, you know, who thinks that superheated plasma is part of a textile process, but it's, it's becoming there and utilizing, you know, the kind of the, the really kind of breakthroughs to get away from all of these uh, chemicals and additives. So absolutely, that's a huge part of what we're doing. Great. Thank you, Amanda. And a good point to use this time to just remind everyone to, if you have any questions, just to pose them in the Q&A function. Um, I can see one of them just popped up, but I have a question that I want to ask first. I wanted to maybe speak more about the frameworks. Obviously, this um, for the hour, there's so much to talk about within biodiversity and apparel. So thankfully, my colleagues made it so that we're mainly focused on the measurement part of it. Um, and with so many with the COP15 and everything with some with the growing calls for mandatory disclosure um, of nature impacts in the industry, with it come all of these frameworks. Um, so maybe Franklin to you first, since you mentioned the global diversity, uh, biodiversity framework that, that was spoken about at COP15. Um, I wonder if you could talk more about how you see that complementing, contrasting, working alongside other frameworks, just to reiterate to, to the audience, um, what does that mean to them? This, this new framework, is it completely new? Does it work with others? Be great to hear more on that, Franklin. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and the questions in the chat are um, are absolutely fascinating. So hopefully we'll have a chance to get back to, to those that come in. Um, so I think, you know, big picture, the, um, what we heard at COP15 um, was that when it comes in, you know, take the global biodiversity framework, when things um, come into practice for the corporate sector, um, that, uh, for instance, knowing <laughs> your um, impacts or your risk for impacts on nature, um, you know, from um, the, I think the entire value chain, right, from um, the raw material production to, um, you know, genetic spending, milling, um, dying and 
um, you know, final uh, sewing and then, and then transport and then end of life or, you know, reuse, all of those areas have impacts on nature and biodiversity. Um, what we've learned is that at least at a global sector level, um, you know, many of the biggest impacts on nature um, tend to be in that raw material space. Um, and so a lot of the um, uh, newer frameworks like um, the task force on nature related financial disclosures and the science-based targets um, network and science-based targets for nature frameworks in addition to SBTI, um, you know, where those are really focusing is um, how to get uh, how to get things right and really understand uh, risk and impact in that space. Um, and in those tiers. And so, um, you know, obviously there will be more work forthcoming, I think in, um, that will provide guidance for, um, further, further, uh, downstream, but, um, but at least starting, starting there. Um, and, and I think that we heard uh, a lot about the importance of disclosure, um, and so using the task force on nature related financial disclosures, um, they're currently uh, piloting their LEAP framework. Um, and that's the um, framework that's really geared towards, um, you know, learning what is your, um, what is your, your footprint, for example, evaluating um, the risks and the priorities on nature, you know, where are you sourcing things from, how are they produced, and then, you know, what, um, what modes um, and uh, production systems are you using throughout um, the value chain? And then um, also on assessing, um, and then um, I believe it's it's prioritizing at the end. Lisa, you might be better familiar with the acronyms, but um, but really about you know how are you understanding what your risks are, and then at the end of the day, preparing. I think that's what the P is to disclose um, and disclosing what those are. Um, to um, both, you know, acknowledge the risks, but also then, um, you know, what we would like to see and where I think this leads into frameworks like the science-based targets um, for nature, for example, um, is that you can take that disclosure and the learnings from a TNFD process and um, adapt, you know, that to um, the uh, science-based targets for nature framework, which then, um, you know, your, your, assessing and prioritizing risks there as well, but then also moving towards setting targets that are commensurate with the impact and then um, uh, measuring progress against those targets and uh, reporting out on that progress. Um, of course, a lot of that's easier said than done, right? Because we know that transparency and traceability, um, the, you know, the need for that information um, to have a stronger, or let's say a, a more accurate um, understanding of a footprint can be really challenging, but there are tools in place that can help with that. Um, and also navigating each of those steps um, is not always uh, easy either. And we're waiting, awaiting, anxiously awaiting um, the guidance coming out this spring from the Science-Based Targets Network for uh, land steps one and two and freshwater steps one, two, and three. Um, and I think that will help a lot of companies start to you know, really get going. Um, but there, you know, it's not without its challenges. And so we've got um, doing a lot of thinking about what are the tools that can help? Um, you know, what are the qualitative tools, for instance? Uh, there's a, a, a tool out there that the Fashion Pact released called the Biodiversity Strategy Tool Navigator that can walk, that's specifically geared towards this sector to walk folks through each step with the science-based targets for nature framework. 
Um, but then also, um, you know, what needs to happen now in terms of, you know, based on the information that we have available now, um, whether it's perfect or not with respect to traceability and what, you know, to what Lisa was speaking about, how we've mapped at a global level where those biodiversity hotspots are. And so let's take that information and get going where we can, because we don't have a moment to lose. And then at the same time, you know, keep driving towards more and better transparency and traceability in those, you know, larger kind of globally traded commodity production systems where there's less transparency. Um, keep moving on getting more information there so that then you can feed that into, um, you know, future iterations of running information through these processes. And then use that to really set up, um, you know, both um, larger global scale kind of prioritization and monitoring systems, um, but at the same time investing in, you know, very specific and discrete projects on the ground that are either in supply sheds where, you know, the companies are sourcing or, um, or in areas where, you know, they might not be sourcing or might know that they're sourcing, but might be able to source from one day. We can give some, some specific examples in a bit, but I thought I would stop there. Thank yeah, you, Frank. Yeah, I was just going to turn to you, Liesl. Go ahead. Yeah, just, just to to build on, your Franklin set that up so beautifully by by going into into all the detail, and it it just said I had a flashback of how um, excited every, the the COP fifteen um, sort of delegation was for everyone from you know the hardcore conservationists and biologists right through to the um, the corporate world and, and the financial world and all the NGOs in between. I think there was a real um, anticipation that this would bring people together in a way that that they hadn't really before. And we all kind of know the the AHE targets that were the ones before the the GFA were a, a failure in many ways. And one of the one of the kind of learnings from that is that it, it, they were in a silo, you know, the conservation world, maybe the link to, you know, ministries were, were trying to focus on finding solutions and, and now have sort of broken through a lot of these silos and, and people are, you know, financial people and investors are talking to conservationists and, and businesses in that mix as well. And, and I think that's definitely what we saw um, in Montreal um, and then I think, you know, as, as Franklin was mentioning, this kind of the whole structure for reporting, you know, if you think about it, it came from the global biodiversity framework. So that sort of set the expectation under Target 15 that countries will be expected to build out, you know, reporting and disclosure frameworks. And then the companies within each country um, needs to find ways to be, be you know, fe feeding into that expectation. And then the the TNFD the, ha, has provided a really great framework, and there's been a rapid innovation process around that, building on the TCFD, which happened for climate, so that people could run a lot faster with the the TNFD. So I think that sounds <laughs> lots of acronyms there, but but very exciting to have that framework, and hopefully, you know, rapidly see some of the standardisation in, in language and reporting and everything that, you know, is, is a double-edged sword, right? And 
we need it. We need the consistency. We need the frameworks. We need the credibility and the and the transparency that they bring. But we don't want everybody spending all their time and all their resources trying to answer questions and and you know feeding into these big reporting mechanisms. So I think what I'm most excited about post Montreal is the implementation phase is is building on that sort of preparatory phase and getting the G- GBA through the through the system and I know through groups like the um the business for nature group sort of a little bit to what Franklin was saying about you know looking at landscapes looking beyond silos um what can we learn from other businesses how can businesses start connecting on these topics with with governments and and ministries I know that next level of and here's another Another acronym, um, NBSAPS, which is the National Biodiversity Strategies and Action Plans that, once again, for the first time, are starting to connect the corporate world to, you know, sort of country-level action plans. So I think it's potentially really, really exciting. Um, And, of course, the big opportunity here, (laughs) rather than challenge, is to how to break that down so that companies like Pangea and you know 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 what it means to contribute to be part of that to have really solid robust pragmatic action plans within their companies but no they they ladder up to this sort of big picture um for biodiversity action I think that's going to be one of the most important parts of getting that you know those pragmatic doable steps in place and I can talk to more of those, but I'm going to stop there because I know. <laughs> no, actually, that was going to be sort of maybe for you to elaborate on that. And I know you want you've said opportunity rather than challenge, but just to bring it slightly to challenge, like what are the key challenges that need to be addressed to get to the standardized approach and the widespread adoption of these frameworks in the apparel industry? Like it seems like it's coming, you know, it's it's getting bigger, but there's still a lot of um, criticism of the industry in this space. So. Um, from you know from your experience do you have any um you know advice to people in the room or anyone else on how can we work together to to address these and make it a more standardized approach yeah i think and i'll be quick but like others to to chip in too but i think the sptn um the ar3 framework which which action framework which came from an existing framework so i think it's been it's been tweaked and evolved but to avoid reduce restore regenerate and transform i think that language gives us something from which to peg actions on in a way that that can be elaborated and then i think it's you know as, as, as franklin was saying we we know where the hotspots are we know what the impacts are in our industry yes we're waiting for the science based targets but there's no regrets action policy and you know, being able to start thinking about what what can we do in our capacity, whether it's through the the choice of um, cultivation standards, working within different networks to understand how to be active in a particular region. I mean, you asked for some examples before, and I did have a few written down just um LVMH, for example, working in Chad on um a, a project under this um, living lab, which is looking at sustainable and regenerative um, methods of cotton production um, to restore biodiversity. They're also working in um, in Peru 
um, with Indigenous Amazonian communities on, on production there. Um, uh, Franklin mentioned Kareen and, and the Conservation International Regenerative Fund. Um, we know H&M's working in, in South Africa with, um, with wool growers and our responsible wool standard there and, and local um, NGOs and SAPI, a forestry company in South Africa also, um, which is great because South Africa is one of the, the big biodiversity flagship countries um, working across, um, across sectors within a, a catchment to make sure that, you know, soil erosion is, is stopped and forestry is contributing to sort of local east ecosystem restoration so that their water supply down at the, the mills is, is, can be, you know, well managed from looking upstream. And I think what's also really exciting about the things I've just mentioned is this, um, just like companies need to break out of silos and work maybe with other companies and with either other sectors, NGOs need to do the same. We need to be joining up our action and leaning in on each other where their expertise can be, you know, collaborative or complementary. And I, I think this is another shift that we're just starting to see and find our way into. And it's like, you know, pulling back the, the covers or whatever and thinking this makes so much sense, but we have been deep in our own sort of budgets and criteria for, for delivery. And, and I think this is all starting to shift a bit as we think about landscapes and not just commodities and, and siloed sourcing. Thank you, Lisa. I mean, maybe that's a perfect bridge to, to bring Amanda in and see, you know, what does that all mean in, in practical terms for business? What is changing at Pangaea? Is it sort of, oh, we've been doing this all along? Keen to hear from you, you know, what frameworks are you looking at? How did you choose those? Um, and yeah, what does it look more like more practically? And if you wanted to note on anything else. First jumping in on something that is not actually what you could consider a practical response, but while you were, while Liz was talking, all I was thinking is microbes, microbes, microbes. And, you know, what does, I think one of the things that's tricky about this space is, you might think, what does a fashion company have to do with investing in microbe development, right? But that's really the key to a lot of this is soil health and the invisible parts, again, of how do we, it's not just the plant, but how does that plant grow in relationship to this plant? What are the, you know, is there enough nitrogen in the soil and all the invisible things and even the networks of mycelium that are kind of, that are, that go across different frameworks of land, et cetera. So that's, um, those are really complex systems. And quite frankly, you know, scientists are just starting to understand them really well too. So, you know, it's not like the fashion industry is, you know, we have to be keeping up, but it's not even a hundred percent understood yet. Right. So that's one of the things that I think is, is really critical around recognizing sort of how all the systems interplay and what's going to be important. So, you know, what, why, why am I looking at kind of enzyme development as someone who's trying to make the next generation of textiles, right? So there's, there's a non-obvious maybe pathway there that it's important for people to recognize. And it's not to say that everybody inside the industry has to understand everything about it, um, but we have to kind of really kind of logically acknowledge and map out what that path is. Um, so your question was actually more about business practice, I guess, right? So I think that one of the things that, you know, we have our, you know, our impact targets and and all of that, but I think one of the more important things, I think these these two ladies are very well set up to talk about like all of the 
frameworking. And what we're trying to do is really stay a couple of steps ahead of that to say what's coming next. Cause one, one of the biggest issues, and you know, I, I say this coming from lessons in sort of like synthetic biology is you need to be, you, you, you as, as a kind of someone on the cutting edge, you have to set your own rules, frameworks and grounding. You don't want to have kind of legislation come in and, and, and maneuver around something that maybe the people, you know, the, the legislators are not fully understanding. So if, if scientists and the people who are really developing the kind of next gen um, are the ones that are actually creating the frameworks, then that's a place where we're going to get really kind of, you know, very systems that actually work. Because one of my biggest issues with a lot of the kind of regulation in this space, I'm pro-regulation, but a lot of it isn't smart. And it's actually sometimes stopping innovation or or just not measuring it properly. And so when we start to say, like, I think that our our kind of um, freight, like mindset at Pengai is we're going to stay, like, we're always going to be above whatever regulation there is. And we're going to be trying to get to the next place to be like, oh, what, what should we have around regulation of microbes? Right. So, <laughs> right. Which is not even being thought about or new, you know, when we think about new material categories. And I mean, literally just like, tax and import laws around, you know, things like, what can you call leather? I'm getting, you know, going off track a little bit, but I think that there are a lot of these things that come down to commerce and financial questions, which then feed into the practices that people will do on the other side. Like what makes it realistic for brands to be able to put these new practices into place? So looking kind of a few steps up and out of that. So the the financial issues, the tax issues, all the incentives of for doing the right thing. Thank you, Amanda. Um, just taking note of time, and there's a lot that I still want to talk about. I just thought it might be the right time to bring in Michael's question from the chat, who I've never actually heard this say, said aloud, so I'm actually not sure how to pronounce it, but the is it the IBAT or IBAT um, STAR tools um, that exist in the industry. Um, I'm not sure if there's some one of you three that has looked at this um, and would like to, to answer the question. Um, he's asking about whether it is the right data source for self-evaluation on biodiversity impact. Um, would anyone like to ask? Yeah, Franklin? Yeah, I can respond. And, and if others want to weigh in, um, please feel free. And I'm um, not the most technical um, of our team that's working on um, working within like the science-based targets uh, for nature land hub, for example, we co-lead that hub with, with WWF. Um, and, um, however, in some of our work on, with the fashion pact, um, and with fashion pack signatories, we have run, um, the star metric, for example, um, and use that to help identify, um, both, you know, potential risks as well as drivers contributing to, um, to risks and impacts. Um, I think, my understanding is that um, that's certainly a good tool to be using at that level. The more granular of data you have, the better, um, because you'll be able to understand exactly you know what's happening on the landscape and what and unpack what the tool can tell you about what's happening there. Um, but then when it comes to sort of monitoring over time, uh, we may need a different suite of tools and metrics um, for monitoring, but certainly for the, the first steps, um, STAR is a great spot, a great, great place to start. Great, go ahead, Liesl. Yeah, I can't, thank you, Franklin. You saved us all with that. <laughs> 
Let's hope I'm right. <laughs> um, but I think one of the one of the things you I was thinking as you were speaking and in, in conversations I've had with various um, people is you know how do we address scale but then also the granularity and and I think you know IBAT and and some of the other tools are helping with that that scale and that sort of general picture of what's going on where. Um, and then there's and, and and you know and I think one of the big 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 golden opportunities is to figure out how to prioritize. So and there'll be various ways that companies will will prioritize based on lots of things. Like oh, the obvious one is is volume and and or, or country level risk or material level risk. You know there, there's there will be ways to you know to, or, or you might want to start with a particular project because you you know who you're working with and and then you know learn and, and scale from there I, I think you know that's a whole topic in itself but I think joining that I had somebody kind of tell me quite beautifully how to join these big frameworks that they need to keep an eye on with you know on the ground visiting a farmer community in in this case, it was in India, um, and just learning about, you know, there's this term called citizen scientist, and whether that's the term people like or, or don't like, it's about on the ground knowledge, often potentially generations that could actually lose that knowledge and, and just how you can appreciate and, and treasure this really valuable knowledge of, of what's going on on the ground and Amanda, I have to quickly tell you my microbe story because um, I was in a very remote part of India quite a few years ago um, with a small group of, of um, cooperative farmers, organic farmers, and people had come in from miles away in rickshaws and, and all sorts of things for a lesson in how to look after the microbes in the soil. Oh, I love it. <laughs> Amazing. And this 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 incredible man that was there were about three levels of um of translators to get from his native indigenous language into various languages um in india and then back to us feeble english speakers um but he was part dancing and he had various containers and the whole point was to be able to support the health and feed the um the microbes you know it wasn't about the killing so much of the of the pests and the but it was you build that health um like you do maybe in your own own gut so so much knowledge and wisdom and I think that's hopefully another area that as a community we can start to appreciate where where wisdom and knowledge is and and the diversity of that so thank you for the microbe conversation <laughs> Thank you both. I mean, you did my job for me, Lisa. I was just trying to figure out how to weave and move to sort of the on the ground um, part. And you quite literally said on the ground, really. so <laughs> don't really need to do much there. Um, but it would be remiss to not talk about, you know, the data that we put into um, all of these frameworks. And it'd be great to hear from you how we can ensure that this data that we collect and the information that we collect is accurate, is reliable, um, and there's the conversation about, you know, working with farmers and bringing them onto the table and they have such an important place at the table, slash we should be at theirs. Um, how can we, so sort of two-pronged, how can we ensure that the data that we're collecting is correctly and how do we bring them into uh, a working conversation with, with these farmers? Um, maybe if I turn to Franklin first. Great, thanks. Um, 
Okay, maybe so starting on uh, getting, you know, correct data, I think uh, that depends on <laughs> so many dependencies, right? Um, I think it depends on what is the level that you're looking at? Are you looking on the ground? Um, in which case, yes, absolutely. You have to be working with the users of that land, right? Um, and um, whether it's, um, you know, communally grazed, whether it's, um, you know, privately held, whether it's um, managed forests that are part of, um, you know, a, a farm, for instance, um, or protected forests. Um, and I think that there's, you know, to some as to some degree, you you have to have that those relationships to ensure that trust. Um, but I think we also know that you can't have that degree of relationships everywhere in supply chains to be able to, um, you know, do business. Else, you would you would we would be you know technical assistance providers and farmer liaisons and not uh, apparel companies, right, or conservation organizations or other stakeholders on the call. Um, so I think it means, you know, there's, there are the, there's the individual landowner operator, what have you, there's, you know, um, we can look across uh, in the commodity space, for instance, we can look across supply sheds and use that kind of aggregation point um, from whether it's the first point of aggregation uh, with respect to um, uh, processors and um or, um, you know, you can certainly look at um, farmer associations and farm groups and how are you working with bigger entities um, in that way. And then I think once you then begin to scale up um, to, say, like across country or multiple sourcing countries, right, I think that's when we start to think about what are the um, programs through which you can work, whether, as Liesl was mentioning, you know, um, whether it's a standard or um, certifications and verifications, you know, knowing that um, that's an indicator of success and um, often, um, you know, used as um, a credible um, way to have a more responsible product, but also understanding that, um, you know, we have seen like the cotton example and we have seen cases of fraud, right? And so how do you, and that's, that's a big one, but there are, you know, small, um, uh, cracks in all of this. And so I think, again, it comes back to understanding where um, some of those most important um, hotspots are and building relationships there. It always comes back to people and time. Um, and then I think, you know, when you're getting at like global meta levels where you're looking across countries, across commodities and raw materials and, and other systems, it just impacts you know, um, kind of writ large, um, you know, it's it's looking at, um, again, you know, metrics that have been um, used in the, and evaluated, peer-reviewed, um, recommended by um, other, um, by key frameworks. So, um, you know, I always, at this point, because we're, we're really focused on it, but, you know, coming back to the science-based targets for nature framework, for example, and the, and the question about the, the STAR tool, I mean, I think that's, that's a great question and, and relevant here too, because it could be that in the future it might, they might want to use it for monitoring. I think what um, we have to do is is think about, you know, where can we wait, for instance, for the the version one guidance to come out with science based targets, and for biodiversity, what are they going to point to um, in terms of you know tools and metrics to use 
Um, but then, you know, also if there's, you know, work you want to get going on now, instead of waiting to one or two months down the road, um, then I think those are conversations that you have with your, with credible partners. And so that's when partnerships start to come into play too. And so, um, you know, do you have partners who one have, you know, whether that's private sector or NGOs or science academic institutions that are, that are helping to, um, to identify the right tools, helping make sure that there's good data going in, good data coming out. And then where you may have gaps, and this is what I think is really important in a sustainability space. I come from the sort of food and beverage um, uh, space until the last couple of years. And um, what I've seen is, uh, you know, we're going to have to make assumptions when we're putting data in, whether you're, uh, you know, on the ground with a, you know, half a hectare farmer, or whether you're looking across um, the globe, we have to make assumptions, and we and then those assumptions will affect, you know, the certainty of the outcomes. Um, but otherwise, we're not getting any information if we're not making some assumptions. And so, I think it's partnering again with really credible advisors that can help you determine what those assumptions can be, so that at the end of the day, um, though you're you you have confidence in. Um, leaps that you might be making based on those outcomes for decision making, for investment on the ground, for reporting back against targets, um, so that, you know, feeling confident in that. And so that then when more information comes to light, you can adjust as necessary. And not being able, I think really important, not being afraid of saying what assumptions you've made and just being public about it. You know, say you're, um, you really want to set some kind of a target. We've done this with Procter & Gamble. This is a out of this sector example. Um, but you may only have country level data for volumes and materials. Um, and so, you know, walk understanding what are the assumptions that we need to make to be able to, to run, um, you know, make some estimations on volume and footprint and then tying that to impact areas, making investments accordingly. Um, but just being really clear on that, I think is how we can get things going faster um, rather than again, waiting for, for the perfect, um, the perfect where it may not exist yet or ever. Um, yeah, I don't know if that helps, but um, that's, no, that's really helpful. Thank you, Franklin. I'm just taking note of time. So before I close off, I just know that I felt like that was a really good answer to the question. But Amanda, Liesl, if you wanted to add anything on that. I mean, I'll add just a tiny point on this notion of data and, you know, the whole idea of Data, data collection is an evolving science, right? So there's also this idea of, you know, you, we need to be challenging the metrics and the methodologies as well. And if things are kind of coming out that are nonsensical in a certain way, right? We There, there needs to be a feedback loop between mm -hmm. here are the outcomes that we're kind of assessing. And then here, the, the tools are not set in stone in some black box, right? We are evolving that with the science of the collection and of the analysis. And so there has to be this kind of evolution together of how do we make the tools better? How do we make the algorithms better? Right. Because th that's part of the evolving science. And so I just, I kind of want to point that out there that the systems are as good as we can have them right now based on what we know, but we also have to be part of that collective process to push the metrics and measurements in the tools forward as well. So I, and I would just add to that because that's that was brilliant, Amanda. I think that was a really good good build. Um, and I was going to say, yeah, that the tech and the technology it will it will evolve. And the point I wanted to add was, you know, data is valuable. It is so valuable. And if we think about what 
farmers and land owners and producers are doing and then they're producing these commodities and they're going into the market you know we didn't this will be part two of the webinar I think Tanya but um, <laughs> looking at how to incentivize good data and and rewards for for the not only the data but the impacts that the farmers are having the ecosystem services and benefits on the ground so that was a fast hour. <laughs> I know, so fast. Um, okay, I'll have to round it up now. Um, I encourage everyone to continue this discussion separately, maybe around microbes. Franklin, we didn't hear a story from you around microbes, so maybe that'll be in part two as well of this webinar. Um, just a quick note that we will be continuing these discussions at our Sustainable Apparel and Textiles conferences this year in Amsterdam in the US. You might see some of these faces at the conference. So check out our website for more information. Thank you to Liesl, Franklin, Amanda. Thank you very much for a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much. Have a great rest of your day. Mm -hmm.